You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive people who want to live their best lives without getting wiped out. I'm Leah Burkhart, your very own self-identified HSP and super nerd. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so to give you some updates, I'm almost done with the online courses I'd hope to get finished. A lot of the preliminary stuff is done. I'm just in the middle of figuring out how to embed it onto my website and link it, and you get the idea. So stay tuned. And as it happens, talking about my courses turns out to be a great segue into the topic for today, work. I don't know where you're listening to this podcast from, but from where I'm recording it, the United States, we are culturally conditioned to treat work as a fundamental facet of our identity. If you're looking for proof, just look at how we engage in conversations with other people. The first thing we ask when meeting someone new is, what is your name? And then the next one, what do you do? Which, when you think about it, is kind of a tricky question. At least it is if you're not culturally conditioned to understand what people are really asking. Because, I mean, what do I do? I do all kinds of things. I shower daily. I walk my dog. I brush my teeth. I write. I eat. I move my body. I spend time with friends. I also devote a sizable chunk of my time to work I find interesting. Part of the time, or part of that time, is spent at a hospital working as a health educator. I also have a private practice where I coach clients and publish courses that I hope highly sensitive people and introverts will find useful. But really, that's not what people are ultimately asking, at least not most of the time, when they ask that question. What they are actually trying to discern is, how do you earn your money? How much of it do you likely earn? How much respect does that require me to pay you? In the Minimalist podcast, Joshua Feld, Milburn, and Ryan Nicodemus break down work into three categories. You can have a job. This is typically something that just earns you money. You don't necessarily have any special link with the work, but it pays the bills. Typical examples might include waitressing or bartending or being a laborer, which is not to say that one can't also be connected to any of those jobs. I just mean that many people cite those as examples when they say they have a job, quote-unquote. You, you can also have a career, so this is number two, which is something you often have to spend a sizable amount of time to build momentum. Uh, you might have a career in law or medicine. Uh, you might have a career in business. In essence, a job is something that earns you money. A career is something that earns you money and is linked with achievement and or status. Finally, you can have a calling. A calling is something that one feels deeply connected to. You have a calling to become a teacher, perhaps. You might feel called to write. You can have a calling to help the homeless, which manifests in any number of ways. Or you might feel you have a calling to help highly sensitive people live their best lives. So, a job earns you money. Careers earn you money and status. A calling may or may not give you money or status but it does provide you with a sense of personal satisfaction. I make no claim that any one of the three, by the way, job, career, calling, is intrinsically better than the other. I would argue that we all need a way to make money. Food is awesome. 
And those pesky grocery stores do insist they be paid for it. Those shysty, dirty rats. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I also would just like to observe that truly highly functioning people, those that have a deep sense of satisfaction in their lives, tend to have a calling. But what does this have to do with highly sensitive people? In what way is a highly sensitive person's experience of work, quote unquote, unique, if at all? Well, basically, it breaks down to two things. One, highly sensitive people don't do well with being over-aroused. They tend to have a more sensitive sense of smell, and they are therefore more likely to be disturbed by strong odors. They don't tend to do well in, say, weird lighting. Uh, they don't work as well in loud and disruptive spaces. None of this means they can't make do with their work odors and communal office spaces. Many of them do just fine, thank you very much. But... Maybe a better way of saying it would be to say that they do their best work when they have a serene work environment. This is also not to say that non-HSPs don't also like having a serene place to work. So please don't think I'm going there. <laughs> um, they're just less likely to be affected one way or the other. Highly sensitive people. This is number two now. So that was number one. They're sensitive, so they don't like icky spaces. Icky meaning over-arousing. Number two... Highly sensitive people don't tend to do well with work that feels like drudgery. They often report needing to make a difference. So making widgets might not necessarily be an HSB thing. Widgets being a word from economics, in case you're an econ geek like me. Their ability to see the big picture and understand complex problems makes them want to go out there and be a part of a solution. And the solution often isn't making more widgets. Just saying. Now... I know you're probably tempted to think right now, who in their right mind would ever want to work with a highly sensitive person? Who would ever want to hire them? I mean, so they need to have a Goldilocks work environment? Seriously? But be careful, because in all likelihood, if you aren't yourself a highly sensitive person, you probably work with or even quite possibly for one. Remember, highly sensitive people come with some great assets. They're good at seeing the big picture and understanding complex problems. They're good at listeners. They're good at listeners. They're good at listening <laughs> and often win the affection of many people in the office for that very reason. Um, they're conscientious, which means they will work hard and long in order to get the job done and done well. Uh, their, sensitive prime, their sensitivity primes them well for empathy which can be helpful in the office, as well as in areas that include business and marketing. I mean, how can you sell a product if you don't have empathy for your clientele and or your market? Um, and they're risk averse, which therefore means they make decisions that are not likely to cause problems for the company. So let me give you an idea of what a more nuanced take on what an HSP very likely experiences. So to start with, HSPs are paying attention <clears throat> to everything. Or at least they're paying attention to subtleties in their environment. That's probably closer to say. Plus they're consci conscious. Obviously they're conscious. They're conscientious. This tends to make them excellent students in the classroom. Can you imagine it? You'll have students that don't like conflict and will therefore remain pretty polite. They pay attention to the content the instructor lays out and they probably take terrific notes. Plus, they're paying attention to the teacher's mood so they know when to ask questions and when to maybe save it for another day. As these students begin to excel in the classroom, teachers take notice. They encourage these students to take on increasingly challenging courses, which, because HSPs love to please, they do. 
What can start to happen at this point is that teachers may begin to notice not only the student's strengths, but they may also start to notice the student's sensitivity. In some cultures, that trait will be appreciated, even celebrated. China and Japan are excellent examples of this. In others, like, uh, I don't know, America maybe, <laughs> um, it will be raised as a cause for concern. Teachers and parents may start to school the student on how to override their sensitive nature. They may encourage the student to continue to challenge themselves, be more outgoing, get better at putting yourself out there, toughen up your skin. Most of the time, FYI, this encouragement is done with only the best of intentions. So the students comply. This earns them a seat in college, where they likely only continue to do well, for now they can not only study, but they can study what they like, and in all likelihood have some more autonomy about when those classes are taken. Do I take evening classes, morning classes, etc.? Their success in college might even lead them into graduate school, where they can earn PhDs and or master's degrees or professional certifications degrees. They may be drawn to study the law, economics, business, philosophy. They win the favor of their professors either way with ease. Again, who wouldn't want a student who participates in class, shows up for every lecture, and scores well on the exams? This might then lead them to seek work in their field. Maybe they try their hand at law business, you know, whatever it was that they actually got the degree in, maybe, hmm? you name it. Because all that education didn't come free, and many of them probably had to take out student loans. So they go out hoping to find work that will pay those pesky loans off efficiently. This is where things get a bit murky. They may find that when they're, even though they might be good at their job, maybe they struggle with adrenal fatigue and burnout. Perhaps in law school, they were on fire, but in an actual law firm, the long hours and political hierarchies of law firms don't work well. They may have gotten all the way through med school, which for an HSP, by the way, would be one hell of an accomplishment, but then decide that the life of an emergency room professional um, leads to compassion fatigue and, once again, burnout. It could also go the other way, just to be clear. So you might have a degree in accounting and become, say an accountant. <laughs> you make decent money, you don't feel overwhelmed, but you don't have a sense that you're really serving anyone. You aren't doing work that makes the world a better place, at least not in the way you would want to be improving the world. And this might not be true, just as an FYI, if you're a highly sensitive accountant and you love your job and you feel like you're contributing to your community, please don't think that I'm making any judgment calls on that. Uh, I happen to know a highly sensitive accountant who's well, a stellar example of a contributor to his community. So what this all encapsulates in terms of, you know, what this captures is probably a better word, is the most common issue that HSPs have. They have a creative mind, a vivid imagination combined with an ability to see the big picture. This leads them to craft wild and big ideas about how they could solve some of the world's greatest challenges. But executing their plans takes far more energy, especially when their more perfectionistic tendencies come into play than they usually anticipate. So when they try to do the things they want, become a principal at a high school in an inner city or case management for the homeless or, you know, you name it, they get burned out. Plus, it often doesn't earn them a paycheck that gives them the security they crave. HSPs are risk averse, remember, so they really like when they try, like they really like security. When they try and make a lot of money in their field, they usually can, 
but they might get burned out by long hours stimulation and or get burned out by, well, just boredom. So what are the solutions here? How can highly sensitive people find what satisfies their desire to give back while also satisfying the desire to have financial security and their desire to remain calm and happy? I mean, whew, what a tall order, right? So there are some solutions that I'm going to cover here. Solution number one, downsize your life. I know, downsizing. Of course, I started with downsizing. Anyway, we, well, at least I, <laughs> live in a wonky culture. If you have a weight problem, the go-to solution is to exercise more. Because who wants to eat less? And when you have money problems, the first go-to is to make more money, not to spend less. But here's the problem. The more we exercise, the more hungry we get, and quite often, the more we eat, which kind of cancels out all the progress that we might have made with, say, calorie, uh, not deduction, calorie deficits. The more money one makes on the same token, the more likely one is to start spending in accordance with one's income. I don't know if it's a universal psychology thing or if it's a uniquely American psychology thing, but it's a thing. So we scramble, forever looking for new ways to make money. Then, when we do, rather than maintain our spending habits, we adjust it to match our new income. Now don't get me wrong, sometimes earning money is exactly what one needs to do. I'm not trying to poo-poo on hustling here. And some people legitimately love to work. The additional money that comes with it is more a symbol of achievement than a perceived necessity. So please don't think I'm advocating against developing financial freedom or meeting whatever dollar amount life goal you might have in mind. If you want to earn a million dollars before you turn 40, good on you. <laughs> um, what I am suggesting, though, is practicing discernment with your spending, regardless of how much money you make. See, if you can get away with spending less... By spending less money in your day-to-day -day life, you end up giving yourself a raise without having to work an extra minute. From there, if you do start to increase your earnings, challenging yourself with new ways of making money, well, this will allow you a greater sense of security. It also gives you more options. Do you want to make more and save more? Or do you want to keep making the amount that affords you the life you want and work as few hours as possible? If you don't need much money to live on, you can take on part-time work or work that allows you to do what you love, even if it doesn't earn much. So what does this entail exactly? Well, I mean, when you think about downsizing, it'll be a little bit more concrete. Uh, you make a budget. I'm going to, this is a shout out to one of my very closest friends in the world. I'm going to use this little, you make an Excel spreadsheet, little tangent here. There was a time in my life where I had, I don't even know how to describe it, a terror, a, a fear, it's something exponentially bigger than a fear of managing my finances. Now, the upside to all of this is I honestly wasn't spending much money, and fortunately, I wasn't getting myself into debt. So, you know, some combination of luck and inner guilt and puritanical something or other, but I hate it nevertheless going into my bank account and looking how much or rather how little money I had I hated the very idea of putting together a budget or an excel spreadsheet because uh have you ever seen people when they watch a horror movie it's like it's the common oh god what am I looking at here 
it's like a kid watching a horror flick. They've got their hands over their eyeballs and they're sort of peeking from between the cracks of their fingers. So that's how I was when looking at my bank account. It was this moment of just, come on, baby, drum roll, and it's positive! (laughs) Um, So, at any rate, I was terrified of doing this. It took a lot out of me to get that particular habit started. So it might, some of you out there, you're just like, what's the big deal? It's an Excel spreadsheet. But if you're anything like me, it can be kind of a mountain to go over. If you have any questions about that, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I will give you all the empathy and love imaginable. Nevertheless, you do have to do it. So then, the next step. Take a look at where you live. Sorry, you're getting a sense that's my pup if you're hearing her. Gotta love her. Anyway, next step, take a look at where you live. How expensive is the cost of living relative to your income? Maybe consider moving. If that's even an option available to you, it's not an option available to many. Maybe you have kids, family, and all of your community resources are nearby. Maybe just moving in because moving does require a certain amount of resources to like execute. Maybe you don't have those resources. So, you know, if you can't do that, I'm not suggesting, well, tough cookies. But if you have that as an option, maybe take a look at what other locations you might consider living in living in. Anyway, uh, then the next one is maybe if you have a home, consider selling it and paying off debt with whatever, I was going to say resources, but I mean, whatever profit that you get from it. Uh, Get rid of stuff in your house that doesn't actually bring you joy. So downsizing doesn't have to just mean spending less and selling your house or selling all of your worldly belongings, but it might just mean taking a look around. How much of the stuff in your home right now is stuff that you love, that brings you joy? Get rid of it if it doesn't bring you any joy. Um, And then get rid of your car if you can find an alternative mode of transportation. So this is what I'm talking about when I say downsize. And I want to be clear here. If you love your stuff, like you look around and you're just thinking, my God, are you seriously judging me right now? I have enough to be dealing with without you telling me that what I've worked for And the little life that I've carved for myself now needs to be shrunken. I'm not trying to say that at all. It's about being deliberate. So it's the difference between if you're hungry, certainly eat more because you haven't finished. Then there's satiety. You feel full, you feel satisfied, but you're not stuffed. And then there's stuffed. What I'm suggesting that you try out is finding the sweet spot of satiety but with your finances, with your living space, etc. So I know I'm making this wildly simplistic, but I'm trying to give you an idea of what I'm talking about when I say downsize. So, okay, so now let's say that you've done that and you're seeing some opportunities for improvement. How do you go about downsizing exactly? Yeah, sure, okay, sell my house, <laughs> whatever. But how do I sell my house? Or, okay, make a budget. Well, what does that even mean? What is a budget, what should a budget look like? I would honestly rather hand the mic to those who are far more savvy than me on this topic because I there's plenty of resources that I've used in my time. And if you have any questions for me about what I did or you want me to kind of give you a an overview, I'm happy to share that with you. But some of the resources that I used and potentially you, I think, might cherry pick different things. Uh, Number one, the minimalists. So I know I've made mention of them earlier. 
They put together an excellent blog article called Financial Freedom, Five Difficult Steps to Get Out of Debt, Create a Simple Budget, Plan for the Future, and Regain Control of Your Finances. Um, There's a link in the show notes, so don't worry about having to write that down. Um, Number two, I also listened to a podcast called Listen Money Matters, where the hosts discuss strategies for mastering money. Um, They wrote a terrific article called Learn How to Budget Like a Pro, and just about any of their podcasts is super helpful in that realm. So again, link is in the show notes. Don't have to worry about writing it down. And if you're struggling with the emotional tug that downsizing stirs in you, like maybe it's not that you don't know what to do, it's that it's the how or it's the but it hurts part of you. Consider looking at Dave Ramsey's article, Downsizing, Overcoming the Emotions. Link also in the show notes. So basically the bottom line on this, find out how much you can actually live on. What is an amount of money slash stuff slash whatever it is you need in your life to be happy? You may find that you can live quite easily on very little. What that can provide you is an ability to work fewer hours. Or maybe it allows you to take jobs that don't pay as well, but can still allow you enough to live on and put some away in savings. For HSP, the primary benefit of this solution, more often than not, is just increased time. You might not be able to afford a plush gym membership anymore, but you'll have plenty of time to do those nature hikes you love. You might not be living in a ritzy four-bedroom house, but the reduced upkeep required of your one-bedroom condo may give you more freedom to explore things outside of where you live. I know for me personally, I know I've mentioned this before, I lived in a four-bedroom house in the Bay Area of California, and I was making good money living in the Bay Area, but I was still, my experience of it was that it was a struggle. I was in traffic for an hour and a half both ways to get to my place of work. It's three hours a day. Just, bye! (laughs) So... And then I'd get home and I was making enough. I wasn't even spending a ton, but 50% of everything I was making was going to rent, not rent, my mortgage. And I was doing okay. Like I was spending a lot of money on like gas. I was spending money on upkeep. I was spending money on fancy food and on going out because dang it, I work hard. I deserve these things. And finally, it just got to be too much because I didn't have the bandwidth to cultivate things that I really find meaningful. I didn't have the time to like feed the things that I value most. I've mentioned this before in previous episodes, but you know, I would say my top values in life are health, my relationships. You know, I value integrity. I value meaningful work. Um, Like these are the kinds of things that I cherish. And I mean, yeah, I was still taking care of my health and I felt like I had meaningful work. So that wasn't the issue, but I don't know that I was really living with integrity because I was creating unnecessary suffering for myself. And as a health coach, that's kind of wonky. And as for my relationships, I mean, I don't know if I would say they'd all were all falling apart. But I mean, the romantic relationship I had fell apart. And I think a lot of it just had to do with compatibility. But a good chunk of it was also that we were both always exhausted. So I moved you know, I, I changed my life. I downsized. And let me tell you, I mean, I'm making less, even when you account for cost of living. But my stress level is so much lower. I've never had an easier time keeping to a budget. I've never had more take home afterward than I do right now. And it's simply because I downsize. So everything's super efficient. 
Everything in my life is just easy. It takes me 10 minutes to get to work. You're allowed to hate me right now if you're currently one of those people that's commuting. Um, I hated people who had reached this point in their lives just a little. But now I'm that person. You want to know what I spend on? I'm not going to tell you what I spend on gas, but I will tell you this. I only really have to fill up that tank like twice a month. That's huge. I suddenly have time to take my dog on a walk and call my family and spend time with friends. And I have the bandwidth because I'm not spending all of the time that I do have, you know, just keeping up with the Joneses or even just keeping up with the bare minimum. And it's not, I also can afford to work less. So I was working full time in the other position. I'm working part time now. So it's just for me, downsizing may opened up a whole world of wonder. Highly recommend it, especially as a highly sensitive person who has a passion for helping other HSPs. I mean, it was a lot harder for me to do that when I was busy working 40 hours and commuting and all the things. So I'm a huge advocate for downsizing. If you're not one of those folks that wants to downsize, though, totally fine. Um, This is not me preaching. This is just me getting real excited. It's sort of like that person who finds the diet that helped them lose weight or you know, the person who figured out that they were celiac and uh, they got rid of gluten. They're like, oh my God, my life is just amazing now. (laughs) And they just start rah-rah all over the place because of their gluten-free diet. And then you just start thinking like, God, you're annoying. Please stop. Give me my bread. I'm not a celiac. Um, So if you're not, I don't know, the downsize equivalent of a celiac, you don't got to get rid of the metaphorical gluten in your life. Just keep what you love, but maybe get rid of what's dragging you down. So moving on. Solution two, let your job be just a job and your passion be what your job affords you. Maybe you make good money as an accountant, but it's boring. You don't want to give up the security it affords you. You have loans to pay. You have a family to support. Whatever the reason might be, you're just not willing to give up that security. But you still want to feel like you're feeding your passion and or giving back. This is not entirely uncommon with HSP. You may remember that we're wired to be sensitive to risk, hence why their risk aversion is so high. So it shouldn't be shocking to know that telling an HSP something like, oh, are you living in an expensive place? No problem. Just sell your house and move. (laughs) Or telling someone, well, why don't you just consider going part time? There may be very good reasons for wanting to stay in a mundane job that doesn't tax your system too much. Well, what then? Well, you can try to simply surrender to this. Try surrendering to your job and not making it something you have to be passionate about. What if you reframed the situation and saw your job as just a job, not a career, not a calling, just the way you make money? Here too, I need to clarify, I'm not suggesting that you give up on cultivating a passion or searching for your calling. What I am suggesting is finding creative ways to contribute to things you are passionate about outside of work. For example, maybe you love to write. Currently, you work in tech. You're fortunate in that your position isn't terribly stressful and you make good money. You actually like your job. I mean, you know, well enough. And it's, well, even if it's boring. You know what's great about boring jobs? They don't require tremendous creativity. That leaves your mind open to ponder ideas for what you can write about when you get home. Einstein developed his theory on relativity while working predominantly at a patent office. He may or may not have loved working in the patent office itself, but it did afford him the resources, both financial and mental, to devote to something he loved. 
Or perhaps there's a cause you want to become a champion for. Consider contributing financial resources to an organization you trust and who you know is working hard to fix the problem you think needs to be prioritized in the world. And in a similar vein, you can also find ways to make the job that you're doing super efficient. So I'll talk about this a little bit later as well, but Elaine Aaron covers one example in uh, one of her books about a client that she had where, you know, he goes on this long journey and at some point he finds a way and he was an accountant. That's part of why that keeps coming up in my mind. He's this terrific example. He didn't love his accounting job in the corporate office. And then, you know, he decided, oh, I'm going to, you know, who needs money? I'm going to go and he was an advocate for some incredible organization, but then he didn't make much money and he was exhausted. So he did a lot of twists and turns and then finally landed on using his accounting skills to open his own company. And then he figured out a way to like, he, it was a very unique algorithm or was a unique strategy. I don't know exactly, but basically he found something, tapped into something that was pretty unique. He had a niche and he started making more money than he could. Like, he had more business than he could handle on his own. So he hired help. And over time, he was only having to work maybe two hours a week, if that, just to sort of make sure that all the wheels were greased and, you know, all of the hinges were you know, smooth, all of the things. So, and then with all of his extra time, he was able to devote to things that he cared about. So you don't have to put so much pressure on your quote-unquote job, the thing that makes you your livelihood. You can divide them. You can uh, diversify, so to speak. Anyway, solution three, you can monetize your passion. So this is on. This is the other uh, side of the coin. Yeah, the other side of the coin. Highly sensitive people tend to make terrific entrepreneurs. They're creative, they pay attention to detail, and their propensity toward empathy makes them able to put themselves in the shoes of their market. They're also willing to work really hard, but they just tend to do better when they have more control over their own schedule. Having your own business, quite often, provides that. So depending on what kind of business you want to run, you might find yourself in a situation where it's like you get up early in the morning, you putz around, you have a coffee, you spend three or four hours doing your job, then you take a nap, and then you get back up, you have lunch, and then you spend three or four hours working, and then you go back to sleep. And then, oh, you finish up your day just sort of catching up on emails, and then finally you go to bed. I mean, you know, however you want it to look. But I'm just saying, it's not that highly sensitive people balk at hard work. Most of them are extremely hardworking. But they don't always do super well with a cookie-cutter enforced schedule. They can be incredibly efficient when they're able to do their work when their energy is high. Because their creative juices start flowing. And suddenly they're not only doing work that they otherwise would be having to take four hours to do in only maybe two hours, but the quality of the work is way better. This is actually the, the philosophy that got the salary concept started. It's like giving people a little bit more flexibility to do a job well as opposed to making them clock the hours per se. So anyway, you can monetize your passion by having your own business. If you're looking for a good resource on this, you might consider looking up Elena... Oh, let's pour it. I do hope that I don't butcher her name. Herdekerhoff? It's in the show notes. It's spelled H-E-R-D-I-E-C-K-E-R-H-O-F-F. She's an incredibly lovely woman. She's got a TED Talk on the subject of being an HSP. Um, her presentation, called The Gentle Power of Highly Sensitive People, speaks on what it's like to be an HSP. 
Um, she also hosts a website for highly sensitive entrepreneurs. Uh, it's www.entreprincess.com. Again, all of this is in the show notes. So, and then another terrific example of an HSP who's found a way to monetize his passion is a gentleman named Andy Mort. Um, he has a steady podcast for highly sensitive people who want to cultivate their creativity and put it out in the world without getting overwhelmed. <laughs> Notice that's a theme that keeps running through all of us HSP podcasters. <laughs> um, and if you're looking for him, you can find him at www.andymort.com, also in the show notes. So, Solution four, embrace the possibility that you're a multi-potentialite. Many of us, at one point or another, were asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? There are plenty of kids who had an answer. You know, anything from doctor to veterinarian. That was mine, by the way. Or Superman. <laughs> um, so some of those kids even followed through on their answer. I don't imagine the kid who wanted to become Superman did, but, you know. Maybe the kid who wanted to become a doctor did. Some of us maybe struggled, though. What if you really like working with numbers, but you also love music? And also books. And also teaching. And also, you know, you get the idea. If this sounds like you, you might be a multi-potentialite. These are folks who don't have just one career track. They, at any given time, often have several things going at once. For some, this itch can be scratched by one place of employment. Hey, hey. Uh, so long as they are allowed to work on a variety of different projects. Emily Wapnick speaks about this in her book, How to Be Everything, a guide for those who still, parentheses, don't know what they want to be when they grow up. Um, and she talks about it in her TED Talk as well, why some of us don't have one true calling. For others, though, it boils down to having multiple jobs or projects outside of work. For example, you might work part-time at a school, you might have a private practice with a few clients, you may also teach Zumba, Plus, you do some gardening for yourself and maybe even for a few neighbors. Oh, and also, you lead a book club on weekends. I don't know how many HSPs fit in this category, but those who I know who are vocal, they have a podcast and or a website dedicated to helping other HSPs, tend to be in this realm. I have a theory that many HSP who are multi-potentialites may also be high sensation seekers, which means they're sensitive to rewards as much as they're sensitive to risk. But I can't say for sure, as I honestly don't have enough data, and I, by no stretch of the imagination, are gonna, am going to make a claim to know what the other person, like any other person other than myself, is experiencing. But just putting that out there. At any rate, the challenge with something like this for an HSP is finding a balance that doesn't cause overwhelm. So remember, HSPs are known for being a bit conflict uncomfortable. The PC term I'm now going to use for conflict avoidant. Um, they have a tendency to take on way too much. If they have several different jobs and or projects running, it can be easy to mistake, make the mistake uh, to take on too much too fast and be miserable as a result. So how can you be an effective HSP multi-potentialite? First, it can help to diversify not only the number of jobs or projects, but the type of them. Don't have three jobs that all require a lot of networking or all, jo like all jobs that require mundane, mind-numbing tasks. Create a system where they're spending part of the time with people in a duration that fits your temperament, and a duration of time when you can retreat into a quiet space, whether people are also in that space with you or not. For those who, are like having, for those who like having security, you might consider working part-time in a larger organization, which tends to be a bit less volatile in terms of income stream, 
and maybe part-time doing something that has perhaps a greater risk, but also greater potential reward. Or you can try finding ways to develop passion. Passion. (laughs) I remember when I was able to have coherent thoughts. Those were good times. Um, (laughs) You can try finding ways to develop passive income (laughs) so that you don't have to, you know, spend an inordinate amount of time making sure all of your income streams require your constant attention. So like examples might include writing a book or investing or again, starting your own business. Uh, It's worth pausing here when I say things like start your own business. I don't know for sure who it was that made this distinction. I want to say it might have been Gary Vee if you're curious, but don't quote me. But certainly an entrepreneur and certainly a businessman. Maybe it was Kiyosaki. Anyway, uh, a financial whiz. (laughs) Either way. There's a distinction between being an entrepreneur and having your own business or yeah, like being an entrepreneur, starting your own company and actually having a business like a lot of folks who as an example, maybe you open up a restaurant, but you're in that restaurant seven days a week, 12 hours a day. That's not really a business. That's a job. I mean, it's a job that you show up to and you get to keep more of the profits because, you know, you own it. So that's good. But a business is something that if you if it builds enough momentum, you could walk away and it would run itself. So a restaurant becomes a business when you don't actually have to be the person coming into the office every day. You have uh, uh, you have waiters, (laughs) you have a chef, you have maitre d. What am I looking for here? A host, hostess, all of that. Maybe you have a manager. You have someone taking care of the everyday functions of the system. So you maybe only have to show up a few hours a week. That's the example I gave previously, by the way. The gentleman who, you know, started his own company and then managed to make it extremely efficient. So much so that he, you know, he had to find help for all of the business he was getting. So that's a business. That's a thing that's basically taking care of itself. And he just kind of needs to come in every once in a while and make sure nothing like it's maintained. So that is one option. You can consider develop like working part-time or like that's what I mean by uh, passive income rather so yeah write a book start a business invest stuff like that you can create your own algorithm either way so don't be afraid to keep making adjustments over time this is something else I kind of want to bring some attention to the gentleman that I described where he's like, I'm only working two hours a week and the thing that's making me all my money and now I can devote all this extra time to things I'm passionate about. He didn't roll out of bed and make that happen. He had to go through a lot of pain and quite a bit of suffering. I mean, he started by working in his parents' company and his dad evidently thought he was going to be, you know, the junior of that situation. And that didn't fit him. So then he went all like super overcorrection and devoted his time to a passion that exhausted him, that he felt he could never really get to the other end of. Like this was a problem that was never actually going to be fixed and he would just forever be draining all of his resources, financial, mental, emotional, into this void that would just keep sucking up all of him. <laughs> um, so that clearly didn't work. And so this is something that evolved, his ability to kind of create something that worked for him. Create your own algorithm and don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to make adjustments. You'll probably not get a perfect equation right out of the gate. 
you'll likely need to experiment. So take your lesson from our gentleman friend. I don't know what she named him, but certainly for anonymity's reasons, like reasons of anonymity. Anyway, protecting his identity. (laughs) She didn't name him outright, but Anyway, the bottom line on all this is that highly sensitive people often, though not always, struggle in the workforce when they try to fit themselves into a standard workflow that was created by and for non-HSPs. That doesn't mean you can't be just as productive as anyone else. In fact, you might even be more productive. Nor does it mean you can't hustle. What it does mean is that you'll need to be more mindful about how to craft work-life balance or even work-life integration, that fits your temperament. Not only is it possible, I would argue it's imperative that you do it, because the workforce needs HSPs in it. There's a reason why this trait hasn't been weeded out of the human race, nor, might I add, has it been weeded out of other hundreds of species on this planet where this trait can be seen. We offer a unique perspective and a unique set of gifts that, when fully integrated into society, can help everyone. HSPs and non-HSPs alike improve their lives. At any rate, I hope this was helpful. As always, if you have any questions about any of the content or just want to get a conversation started about what it feels like to be an HSP, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can find my contact information on my website, www.thehealthysensitive.com. And again, keep an eye out for those upcoming courses. I swear they really are coming. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers.